I'm Steph and this is the Don't Buy Her Flowers podcast. Well, 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 it's December. Uh, We've already had songs around a Christmas tree at school in November, so it's going to be a long one. I know there's Christmas jumper day coming. Top tip, get one on Vinted. Uh, the Christmas fair, bringing a bottle for the tombola, class plays, Christmas songs, a panto, it's a lot. Uh, it's also a time that lots of people feel extra anxious and today we're talking to Dr Kieran Schnack about anxiety. Dr Kieran is a clinical psychologist, she specialises in anxiety and she actually has a book called 10 Times Karma, Beat Anxiety and Change Your Life with loads of practical advice in it and we talk about what is happening in our bodies when someone is overwhelmed with this kind of debilitating fear, um, the different triggers for anxiety, the impact that having children has. We also go into the tools, which is what Kieran is all about. Um, she has the loveliest soothing voice, so that helps. And as it is the season, we talk about Christmas, the different anxieties that people might be feeling, um, different situations that might make people anxious, the, how to tackle those so you don't spend Christmas and the lead up feeling a sense of dread. December for me is pretty full on. I've got three kids but also I run a gift company so obviously it's a busy time. Um, if you're looking for Christmas gifts I would love for you to look at don'tbuyherflowers.com. We've got gifts for everyone, gifts for soothing and encouraging someone to relax. We have a package all geared up towards helping someone with sleep, gifts to say Thank you for someone that's helped you out this year, as well as delicious food and drink, great books, and just brilliant gifts that will be extra perfect to relax with post-Christmas, when hopefully you'll have a bit of a lie down. All um, packages arrive gift-wrapped and with your message handwritten, so no post office queues. This episode is sponsored by the Institute, and you can hear a bit more about them later in the episode. So let's get into it. Here is Dr. Kieran. How are you doing? How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm all right, I think. It's just Christmas is coming, so there's that going on in the background, isn't it? So obviously we're going to talk about anxiety, and I've got your book, 10 Times Karma, Beat Anxiety and Change Your Life. And I interviewed Kieran at Henley, I should say, so we are familiar with each other. But there's so much in it, so I think what I want to do is talk about anxiety and what it is, because I think, again, because we're all online and there's so much noise and there's people who aren't necessarily experts talking about things like mental health problems or issues or conversations. So it's a bit of a chat about anxiety and then also some tools, because that's your whole thing, really, in your book and what you do on your Instagram. It's helping people with ways to actually tackle it. If we start with the sort of defining anxiety, but also what's the difference between the normal stress and ups and downs and anxiety? Okay, yeah, that's a good uh, distinction to make. So normal stress and occasional ups and downs are part of normal life and everybody has them sometimes. You know, these are temporary situational things and they're usually manageable. The intensity of them is mild to moderate and they are proportionate to the situation. So I'd say that's normal stress and anxiety. Anxiety is a natural response. It's an emotion. Everybody has it sometimes. But the book really is about people with anxiety that's become problematic. So that kind of problem anxiety is when it's excessive, persistent, it interferes in many aspects of your life. It hinders you rather than helps you in dealing with challenges. And unlike daily stress, which is proportionate, it tends to be disproportionate to the problem. And it's more intense, it's more prolonged. And it brings on a lot of kind of physical, 
mental thoughts, symptoms in the body. So that's the difference. An example would be, you know, of a normal stress would be feeling nervous before a job interview, feeling stressed about a tight uh, deadline or trying to balance, you know, many different things. As a parent, that stress is temporary and situation specific. But an anxiety kind of example would be constant worry about different aspects of your life, your health, your children, your work, even without a specific trigger or avoidance mm-hmm. that is persistent of certain situations because of fear or other thoughts, really, that drive that behaviour. You mentioned sort of some stress helps. So like you said, like if you're nervous before something, actually that might put you on your A game or might make you focus or that kind of thing. And that's a really different thing to this debilitating in the book you write, anxiety becomes a problem when it's prevalent in the absence of immediate danger. Yeah. That's quite a clear line I took from the book. Yeah. And that's key, isn't it? Because we need some stress because if we didn't have some stress or some anxiety, it wouldn't do anything. Enhance, <laughs> it wouldn't get anything done. So we, we say, you know, as a psychologist, I say it's either your stress and anxiety is either performance enhancing it helps you get ready mm-hmm. and prepared and make sure things that need doing are done or it's performance debilitating because it's got so high that uh, you now can't function in the way that you would and you can't manage it. And you mentioned fear as well. So is that another way of looking at anxiety that it becomes a fear of? And it, like you say, we can talk about all the different triggers, but fear is kind of at the centre of it. Yeah, fear and anxiety go hand in hand. People that are anxious or have problems with anxiety experience fear. Fear and anxiety, we can sometimes say is the same thing or that you are fearful of symptoms or thoughts or situations. And the causes and triggers, looking at your book, a lot of this is happening in this kind of rush hour that we talk about on this podcast. So I think I can see it through friends and colleagues and who are in a similar stage of life as me and you, but... So you've talked about sort of body based, which includes hormonal. So you've got all the different changes that are often going on for women, whether they've had children or in menopause or perimenopause, and that kind of thing. Um, health, anxiety, the online and social and news kind of feeds, mm-hmm. relational. So that could be about being alone or it could be about not being alone. Cognitive triggers. So remembering something or trigger words and also triggering places and situations. I mean, there's loads, basically, and everyone's triggers are different, right? But how important is it to pause and try and work out what it is that's triggering your anxiety? It is very important. And I think if you want a complete solution to problematic anxiety, understanding Mm. the triggers gives you very valuable insight into the web of thoughts, emotions and experience that contribute to your anxiety. So most of the time, actually, there'll be a recurring trigger. So that knowledge about that recurring trigger offers a window into identifying patterns and it's these patterns that help you gain the ability to trace back to root causes and when you get to those root causes it's those that need kind of exploration and management and a solution because that means you're addressing it at the core so I say we use triggers to trace back to the root cause and especially the root cause where it's fueling repetitive triggers how do people even start with that to try and figure out what those triggers are if it doesn't feel obvious? Because I suppose part of the problem with an ongoing anxiety problem is that you start living with it. It's not always easy to identify, even though it probably would be to someone like you. If you come in and start talking to someone, you probably can figure it out relatively quickly. Yeah. You can, uh, you know, as self-help, you can figure out some of your triggers. And I go into that a lot in 10 Times Karma. But it's about pausing 
keeping a record, understanding the situations in which this thing happens, what thoughts accompany it when you're triggered. So, you know, if I was triggered today and it was the same thing, the experience of anxiety is familiar to the person. So they know this is how I think and feel when I'm anxious. So I'd say, well, where were you? What were you doing just before that? What were you thinking at that time? What was what were you experiencing? You know, uh, who are you with? It, this is kind of a good way to start looking into the triggers in more detail and identifying any kind of recurring themes so you know some people might say it's every time I hear about uh, you know a celebrity becoming unwell or it's every time I have to drive my kids to school you know leaving work or uh, driving to collect them and worrying about something happening to me on the way so often I think people do have some idea but yeah the, the best way to get started is look at situations thoughts and experiences that are repetitive and you can start to keep a journal of those and that can help you see a pattern emerge in triggers Mm. and the fight flight or freeze which probably most people are familiar with but don't necessarily fully understand it but it's how you respond to threat right fight is when you're faced with danger or perceived danger and in response to it your instinct is to confront it and combat it so an example would be you're afraid in the supermarket because you think you're going to faint, but you know it's your anxiety, so you stay there and confront the fear. So that's an example of fight. The flight response means you're escaping or avoiding the situation that is either threatening or in anxiety that you just perceive it as threatening. So that triggers physiological changes in your body that help you kind of make a quick escape. So that's the flight response. The freeze response, which is probably talked about a bit less is where your body goes into a a state of immobility temporarily all action kind of comes to a stop it's a response to more overwhelming stress or danger so you get this momentary frozen state so that's the freeze Mm. response um i feel like i've heard that one more in response to like a, a physical threat yeah, where so like an attack or something like that, where someone might go into kind of their their body doesn't react in the way that they thought it would because it's just almost shuts down. Yeah, it's common in those kinds of situations where there is an actual physical danger, but also people that mm. have got chronic anxiety issues or panic attacks, they might be confronted mm. with something that they've been avoidant of for a long time and that causes this kind of almost deep shock that puts them into a freeze response because it feels like that thing is now coming true so that can be often Mm. when you see a freeze response Mm. and the the fawn response I don't know if you've heard have you heard of fawn the fawn response you've got it in the book haven't you yeah yeah it is in anxiety but I'd say it's more talked about in trauma and it's when you attempt to appease or please the threat. So the threat is usually kind of around another person. So it's a survival strategy where you're seeking to meet the needs of other people at the expense of your own needs in order to avoid confrontation, threat or danger. Not to go with all the gender stereotypes, but especially women and tying it in with people pleasing and that kind of thing. That is kind of what we often do, right? Because we're taught to do that. Yeah. Yeah, people pleasing, agreeing with someone despite having a different opinion because you want to avoid conflict mm. or apologising when you actually don't need to or you're not at fault. It's about suppressing yourself. But then are you saying that that then, that, but then the, that's your reaction, but the anxiety then is double-sided because you're trying to make the other person okay, but you're also probably feeling gutted because you've agreed to something or you've nodded along to something that you don't actually agree with. Yeah, so, mm. you know, people do feel gutted, but people that do this 
often have been doing it for so long they're mm. almost sensitized to feeling gutted um, and it's a suppression isn't it you're suppressing yourself so I think these things find a route out so you might find that you experience other stress and anxiety in your life or that you're uh, right. you've got physical stress in your body as a result of this suppression and I think suppression is something that I also talk about in the book that it has to go somewhere because the pressure is just being pushed mm-hmm. in and in and in it hasn't got an outlet so it will manifest itself somewhere else in your mind or body and that's probably I suppose in this whole conversation if you don't tackle anxiety or you don't try and work out these things I suppose it's the acknowledgement that it will come out as something at somewhere somewhere yeah. along the line it doesn't just sort of dissipate no we wish it did no it doesn't sadly and you mentioned in the book as well false emotional alarms can you explain what those are and how you identify those yeah so there's detail obviously on that in the book but it's about you know I'll give an example of a situation where let's say I'm making one up obviously so it's not uh, breaching anybody's confidentiality so yeah Somebody feels very anxious that, let's say, their husband is leaving to go on a business trip and they're on their uh, they're, they're home alone and they feel scared because they don't like being by themselves. So we say that that fear, that feeling of being scared, that feel like something bad is going to happen, makes them then eventually believe that it's definitely something bad's going to happen that tonight somebody might break in or they might be an intruder or I will you know pass out and the the kids will have to deal with me passed out and won't know what to do or you know start to catastrophize but it starts from emotion it starts from feeling scared so using that emotion and interpreting it into a fact so that's a false emotional alarm right those could then keep you in that position of anxiety it usually is a pattern because people will have a pattern of taking emotional cues as factual signs of danger or threat. And then when you develop a pattern of doing that, your brain quickly develops a pathway of thinking in that kind of way. So the next time you feel something that is similar to that scared feeling you had then, your mind will think, "Uh uh-oh, this is what's going to happen next. So it will almost present to you the kind of scenarios that you've already thought about because those emotions when they come with those frightening thoughts there's a spike in cortisol and we know cortisol plays a role in memory consolidation so when that same Mm -hmm. fear is recalled or reactivated at another time the stuff that's stored with it kind of comes back too so you almost kind of get into a pattern a cycle really of it being reinforced Mm -hmm. with each re-experience of it yeah so then you're stuck in it even though it's not kind of coming true as such it's not it's not actualizing so you just mentioned cortisol because you talk about in the book you talk about the nervous system you talk about adrenaline and cortisol and about cortisol being persistent and then sitting at a high level and the impact on that can you explain that yeah so when you're anxious your nervous system activates the stress response those are the responses that we've just spoken about fight flight freeze yeah etc and this is what it should do this is a primal survival mechanism you're anxious your nervous system activates itself it gets ready for action part of that activity is releasing stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol to prepare your body for action so you know and this then creates 
so many symptoms and sensations in the body and there are literally hundreds they're they're in they're in my book you know uh, some of the kind of more unusual ones like you know uh, sounds in your ears or twitching or vibrations in your body but common ones are heart rate increases breathing changes muscles become tense Mm. your senses might sharpen um, and that's what happens to your nervous system as a result of these stress hormones and this response in anxiety problems or disorders is triggered when there's no real threat so we don't actually need this kind of primal survival mechanism at that point in time but it happens anyway because of the anxiety problem and when it becomes persistent there's a persistent activation of these physiological responses with it is emotional distress and distressing thoughts that's chronic anxiety that has that featured for a very long time and it leads to overactivation mm-hmm. of the nervous system so you almost kind of it never fully switches off because it's got so used to being activated and it takes very little for it to kind of be re-triggered and it contributes to long-term symptoms and sensations in the body and would that be stuff like the terrible sleep does it manifest physically with how somebody feels in that kind of exhaustion because that feeling of permanently being on alert is going to exhaust someone, right? Yeah, and it definitely does affect sleep because if you think that your nervous system is very activated most of the time with chronic anxiety, why would your brain allow you to switch off and go to sleep? Because essentially your brain thinks something is about to go down, there is danger, so it doesn't want to switch off, so it keeps you alert. And -hmm. then if you then get stressed about wanting to sleep, which a lot of people naturally do because we want to have a rest from this awful state of existence and then you get the anxiety (laughs) that I'm not going to fall asleep and then that brings more stress hormones with it so now you're even more awake so there is a you know many vicious cycles within this breathing is a big one for that right like breathing exercises to try and is that because you're trying to override what's going on in your body breathing especially the exhale making the exhale longer and I think there's so many apps and uh, things out there that you can use with kind of complex breathing exercises but actually the most simple level we just need to focus on taking a good deep breath and holding the breath for a few seconds and making the exhale longer if you don't do anything else make your exhale longer and what that does is it balances the gases in your blood co2 and oxygen and then that helps reduce the action of stress hormones so it's really crucial that your breathing slows down it tells your brain it's okay. There's no need to be uh, on okay. high alert. And it, it activates the rest and digest like the relaxation response. So yeah, it's, it, breathing really is a big one. And this is quite a big question, but what is it that stops someone from doing the things that you know are going to help, right? So like I've got a friend who did a whole breathwork thing. And then when I have been anxious, I think probably in the last year, I've felt anxious quite a lot with just not running on business, children, all the other things but I think primarily like it's a tough time if you're a business owner right Mm. and she will be like right you need to stop and breathe and and or someone will tell me about a really good app for meditating or someone would you know like all these kind of things Mm. that I know will help but Mm. what is it that stops us from doing them and I know that probably is a big question but it's almost it's actually kind of self-sabotage but it's almost like I don't have time for that because you're you're so locked in that feeling of anxiety that you're not doing the things that actually you know would help yeah 
Yeah, and I, you know that's a, a really great question because even a lot of my patients that I see, I say just you know here's the stuff you've just got to do it, and it's very hard, isn't it? Sometimes yeah. to do the stuff because, and I think yeah. there's so many reasons for that. You know, we're a nation of procrastinators, so we put stuff off not because we're lazy, we don't want to do it, but this. There's so many competing demands and some of the stuff that you have to do requires you to stop and slow down. And actually, if life is quite frantic and we're in this kind of rush hour uh, phase um, day to day, it's quite difficult to stop and pause. And we're kind of fired up to keep going. So I think it's we 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 procrastinate because we're overwhelmed with other stuff. There's not that much time or it feels like there isn't enough time to do it. And I think when you're busy and anxious and there's so much going on, it's quite... it's quite difficult to find the mental space as well to think, okay, this mm-hmm. is what I'm going to do. This is when I'm going to do it. This is why. And I, I say to my patients, you need to plan it in your mind. When you're going to do it, how long is it going to take you? You know, try to tag it onto something else, like dropping kids off at school and then you sit in the car for five minutes, set a timer on your phone, and it becomes something that is a habit rather than another demand that, wants something from you that you've not really got the capacity you know the capacity that's what it is supply that's what it's about yeah yeah and that kind of brings me on to as well like do you commonly see that people having children and this phase has an impact on anxiety and overwhelm because I feel like I don't know I might sit around with friends we talk about the good old days before children who we love we have to put that in um (laughs) and Kieran's got two teenagers so yeah I think like the overwhelm impacts those feelings of anxiety and just trying to work out how you look after yourself Mm. but in a way that it didn't I didn't have that pre having children I wouldn't not really no no and it is common I can't cite exact prevalence rates because they tend not to be um studied as a population group that that much but it is common and I think some of that anxiety arises from that profound sense of responsibility we have associated with raising children and you can consider it as adaptive your job is to make sure that these children survive and that you care for them that you're vigilant and it Mm -hmm. prompts you to do everything Mm -hmm. that you need to do that anxiety for their safety and their well-being and keeping yourself alive and well in order for them to be okay. So I think there is a um, a survival and adaptive element tied into that. But then sometimes that can kind of get out of control and the desire to kind of, um, you know, uh, do the absolute best or, you know, striving for perfection in meeting their needs and mm-hmm. that, that, that can cause stress and anxiety because you set such high expectations or you feel like what you're doing is not good enough. I think other things like sleep deprivation, massive lifestyle adjustment, isn't it? Being a parent and my kids mm-hmm. are, you know, are older, uh, you know, older teenagers. And when you get to that phase, you, you, you're looking back, you see each phase is temporary. But when you're in that, uh, you know, the preschool phase, the primary school, the secondary school, it's, it's this relent, relentless kind of demand of. Uh, stuff that you have to deal with but then it quickly changes I think there's um, so much adjustment that happens during parenthood and I think that causes it contributes to stress and anxiety and there's so much uncertainty isn't there associated with parenting and uh, doing Mm. stuff and you're not just about you anymore you've got to be responsible for these uh, well little or big beings humans yeah 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 Yeah, which is a lot I suppose it's whether it's debilitating or not comes into that as well doesn't it so for for some people as a parent their worry their levels of worry maybe don't match with what's the reality whereas 
it's going to be normal, I guess, the normal stress and normal anxiety to worry about your kids. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're humans that you need to look after. So I suppose it's marking out those as two different things. Health anxiety is quite a good example. So sometimes parents get health anxiety about their children. So if your child's got uh, a fever or some other symptom, you know, assuming that it's something very life-threatening when it might just be a minor ailment or a minor condition, mm. that I see a lot. And sometimes that gets out of control and it puts mums on high alert. I'm saying mums because it tends to be prevalence-wise more women in the mm -hmm. UK suffer from anxiety than men. That might be because of the way research is being carried out, but that's that's how the figures kind of speak. But the same pattern gets reinforced that they have a symptom, you, you do the worst case scenario, and then it's not that, but then that stays in memory and in thought, and then it happens again. And that can be really crippling, and then you can become hypervigilant, checking their temperature 100 times a day, you know, worrying about them dying, and the thought of that becomes well, and unbearable. And this is kind of at the extreme end, yeah. Also, I think that, again, for our generation parenting, we have the contact with what else is going on in the world. So you've seen people who have had a child who's, you know, had a headache and then something awful has happened or, and so you, you've seen that that actually happens more than probably our parents would have seen it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the kind of that connection of what's going on in the world is obviously has a massive impact on anxiety and something actually I wanted to mention, cause you've, you posted about it the other day about vicarious trauma. So obviously yeah. there's lots of, really awful things happening in the world at the moment mm -hmm. and particularly on social media mm -hmm. there's kind of two camps I'd say that there's people going you should all be commenting on this you should all be reacting to this you should all be giving an opinion on this mm -hmm. and then there's people who aren't and that's really complicated to deal with from mm -hmm. an anxiety point of view but that you're you're what you put about vicarious trauma you basically said that people with deep empathy particularly suffer and taking care of yourself doesn't imply a lack of care for others. So actually, it might be that the news makes you feel really, really anxious. So getting involved publicly isn't necessarily the best thing for you. Definitely not. And I did that post exactly for that reason. I started to see a lot of mm. uh, my already existing patients that have got you know, felt really traumatized by the news. Um, and I'm on social media myself, so I scroll a lot myself and fascinated by people's, you know, behavior, comments and viewpoints. And yeah. I don't think anybody should be telling anybody else that they should be saying this or should be saying that or should be doing that. You know, everybody's got the right to remain silent or express an opinion if they want to. You know, people are allowed to have the freedom to think and feel whatever they want to. They may not wish to share it. And it's not up to other people to tell them that they've got to do that. And I think we have to remember, we don't really know how somebody feels inside their mind and what's going on for them that mm -hmm. we can then, you know, there's such a lot in it. It's way more complicated than saying you've got to say this or say, say that something or, you, or you've got mm -hmm. to pick a side or your lack of comment. And if if I, you know, I said to uh, uh, some of my patients recently that if you watching traumatizing content would help those people suffering from the drama then you know I would say watch away but it doesn't help them it doesn't it doesn't mm. change it and actually it's making you really poorly and you can't then mm -hmm. help the people that need you to help them um so but then there's that guilt and I think that guilt comes from these comments don't look away if you look away you're a bad person but actually yeah. we're yeah. talking about deteriorating mental health if your mental health is being affected it's your job to take care of yourself and prioritize yourself and your wellness you've got to put that first mm. 
yeah, it was a really clear message, I think, because it is very complicated. Obviously, it's a massively complicated mm. situation. Mm. There's loads of emotion involved and it's awful. Like it's awful from all angles. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's a, quite a good point where you say, does you feeling worse help anybody? No. And that doesn't mean that you don't care. That's really important. No, and I've also suggested in in that post uh, on vicarious trauma that when you take care of how you feel, it kind of frees up your emotional and mental resources and physical to find ways in which you might want to help or support or channel that yeah, kind yeah. of passion and empathy into into ways that feel more well, helpful and beneficial. Yeah, rather than constructing a post that you're going to keep everyone happy and no one's going to be offended and all that other stuff, maybe you're writing to your MP or maybe you're having a conversation with somebody. Like, like yeah, I think it's daft to think that there's yeah. not other things going on for people. And like you say, it's ultimately it's about mental health. The sponsor of this episode is the Indytute, who are not like the big boys of the experience gift world. Indytute experiences are all hand-picked and tried and tested by another female founder, Calypso Rose. Discover delicious, unusual food experiences like afternoon cheese on a barge. That is right, afternoon cheese. Oh. Or perhaps you'd like to get cosy with cocktails in a vintage cinema. There's creative experiences like pottery and some fantastic experiences for those tricky, picky blokes. It's all about making memories and spending quality time with friends and partners. Visit Indytute.com, that's I-N-D-Y-T-U-T-E.com and use the code STEPH10 for 10% off. (laughs) Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. The other thing that is going on in the world at the moment is that Christmas is coming (laughs) and that creates a lot of anxiety for lots of people. So you've got money stuff, you've got family stuff, you've got people doing things they don't really want to do. There's probably thinking of your triggers and causes. You've got situational triggers, presumably for people which might be about family or where they're going and all that stuff. So yeah, what are people going to do the next four yeah. weeks? Yeah, great question. I've, I get asked this a lot at this time of year. And I think Christmas is an interesting one, isn't it? Because people end up having to spend time with or feeling like they have to spend time with family and friends or people that they might not ordinarily want to or don't feel great around. But yeah. the advice always is if, if, you don't, if you don't want to be with somebody, then don't. But at the same time, it's not that simple, is it? If you're in a family and simple. you want to no. go and spend time with your in-laws and, and, the, and then the other set of in-laws, it can lead to a massive rupture, can't it, in relationships if, mm-hmm. if you don't. So it's about sometimes if you're choosing to be in situations or feel like you have to, it's about making that situation more manageable for yourself so thinking about what kind of things might trigger you you know most of us have been at Christmas before what happens at Christmas that tends to trigger me so noting that down in advance and then what makes it worse so let's say it's a conversation so if somebody you know a certain person says xyz and then that triggers me so then what do I do I say xyz and then what happens it actually gets worse than I feel worse so so you want Mm -hmm. to try to identify what happens and ask yourself 
is that how you want to feel? And if you don't, I would change the way you respond to these triggers by minimizing your reactions, taking a break, going standing outside, getting a bit of fresh air, even going to the, you know, to the loo and doing some deep breathing. So a bit of self-care, <laughs> boundary yeah. self-care and identifying your limits in advance and doing that in situation. And I think it's about, you know, simplifying Christmas, really. I think sometimes there is a thing about quantity and quality, isn't there, about stuff and having the best Christmas ever or saying perfectionistic standards of how it should be but I think kind of redefining that can be helpful obviously there's the practical stuff of planning ahead and things like that yeah but it doesn't have to be as complicated as we often make it does it I mean like I don't know you don't have to make all the food from scratch if that's your thing great go for it but for lots of people it's the only time of year where you suddenly are starting making a you know hand crushing cranberries or something it's like does it matter or could you get it from a jar (laughs) because like you say we've had lots of Christmases so it'll be the same things and I guess it could be like around food that's a big one for lots of people and so what in advance can you think about or the the last few years obviously were different because of COVID particularly Mm -hmm. not last year but prior to that and I know loads of people who actually really enjoyed not having to traipse around because it was dictated like you couldn't do that Mm. it took Mm. that layer away and I know there were lots of people who also had an awful time but I think in terms of people who have young families and they're traipsing around and they're trying to please everyone and again the women who are making Christmas great for everyone else Mm. I suppose there was a lesson in that which was simplifying it and like I mean we the last couple of years when we've seen people we've gone on Christmas morning rather than the night before that takes away so much stress you haven't got to pile everything in you know you can be finishing off whatever you've got to finish off and wrapping and all that stuff but also you get that little nugget of the day that Mm. is just your family yeah to feel calm before you're immersed in all the family and I love both you know I love my family I love Doug's family but there's a there's just a lot of other people to think about so that moment that helps Christmas for me just having a bit of time because otherwise I'm also thinking I'm not really with my kids because I'm with 10 other people on Christmas day Mm. and then I've got the guilt thing of like oh I haven't had Christmas with them so just having that bit of morning time really helps yeah definitely them kind of boundaries are changing the way that you do things I think the pandemic did Mm. change uh, that for a lot of people didn't it and I know some people were lonely or they don't have family to spend Christmas with it's hard for them as well but you said about simplicity and I think that's an important one every year we go to Copenhagen my husband's Danish to spend Christmas there and it's my brother-in-law Martin who cooks the Christmas dinner the Danish Christmas dinner is very simple and everything's very kind of calm and simple there isn't a lot of I don't want to use the word drama but high in you know intense activity it's a time to de-stress and spend time with your family it's kind of Mm -hmm. making it slow Mm -hmm. and easy and I think that's important I do think sometimes women put pressure on themselves to make Christmas amazing and magical magical and perfect and committing too much then having too many obligations and then crying yourself to sleep at night because you've got too much to do also it's a really good one to remember like I was thinking about this the other day what did you as a kid enjoy about Christmas because if part of that is this trying to make it magical for everyone and for your kids probably in particular as a kid 
what do you remember about Christmas? And it definitely wasn't the grand stuff. It was sitting around mm. with my brothers and sisters, fighting over the radio times, the rules going out the window in terms of what we ate because we'd have chocolate at whatever time and like the treats that were at home, which for us would have been some crisps that they weren't always there. You know, it wasn't like the amazing finest foods. And yeah. that was it. And that's what I remember yeah. that I loved about Christmas. Yeah, box of quality streets and leftover um, oh, food. Yeah, yeah. And a TV <laughs> till midnight. It, yeah, it is. And I think now, because of social media as well, people compare their experience of Christmas a lot to other people's, and that uh, can feel make yeah. make people you know feelings of inadequacy. And you have to remember, obviously, that that people post the best bits. No, no one's going to post. Um, um, yeah, you know, you don't have to make a Christmas. wreath, Kieran. You don't. Have I've to, never made one ever. I've, I've never people. made a wreath. I've not been to a class there's, either. There, there are people that there's like groups where you can go into these wreath yeah. making things. And I, I've I've got friends that go to them, but I have never in my life made a wreath. But also given how busy, if you're if you are a parent, December is bonkers for all the stuff you've got to do. We're in November recording this. There is a lighting of a Christmas tree and a choir singing that two of my children are involved in at school at five o'clock tonight. Um, so Christmas starts, basically, and then they want their Christmas jumpers on, which I've had to dig out, like all that stuff. And then yeah. there's the tom- so there's a tombola collection today. There's a mufti day. We haven't even started yet. It's uh, going to yeah. be as it yeah. is every year. Yeah. And so if you're adding into that, that you also need to make it extra magical and you need to find time to do make a wreath and all that stuff. It's no wonder that it becomes a period of year, the year that is meant to be really lovely. But actually, how much of it do you really enjoy? Because and also one of the loveliest bits is that bit after Christmas where you have a couple of days where everyone's just sitting around watching Die Hard. That is yeah, that's the, the best yeah, the cozy <laughs> And that's how Christmas should be. And I say, how do you want yeah. to feel at Christmas and align your behaviours with that so you can feel those things? Yeah. Because, you know, for us, it started yesterday. My son had a concert at school. We got home at 10 and then I have to be up at six. So I say to my husband every year, get everything done in November. So December, we can just go to this stuff and not have anything else to do. But we fail miserably each year. So... Uh, yeah, we'll try again I, next year. Kieran, but... I run a gift company. I run a <laughs> gift company and I will be buying gifts two days before Christmas. Absolutely guaranteed. So I'm organised for everyone else. But yeah, not for my own not stuff. But, yeah. But um, on, on the tools. So you talk about the basics. So we've got sleep, diet, movement, fun and connection. And those five Again, I think most people know that those are all really important for your mental health and all of those things, but they often are the things that we don't look after, right? Spot on. And I think that people sometimes think these are such basic things. What, how are they going to actually help? Why me do I? Yeah. Complicated yeah. anxiety problem. And, you know, yeah. the book is about overcoming anxiety problems I keep calling them problems but I mean you know also anxiety disorders that's what problematic Mm -hmm. anxiety is so everything in the book is driven at reducing the action of anxiety stress hormones cortisol especially so we know like poor sleep increases cortisol that's going to make your stress and anxiety worse skipping meals impacts stress hormones and uh, you know if you're eating irregularly your blood sugar is going to fluctuate. That also affects cortisol mm. and, and stress. Physical activity actually reduces stress hormones. So, And it releases endorphins, which not only 
improves your mood, but it helps better regulate anxiety. And fun activities, again, similar effect. It triggers the release of neurotransmitters that are associated with pleasure and relaxation. And these counteract the stress hormones again. And it's the same for social contact. So there is a science behind kind of giving these recommendations. Um, but it's true, it kind of sometimes we don't, you know, people don't do them or don't see the importance of them. And I, I, maybe again, it's pausing to recognize when you have felt better and less anxious what had happened because probably it was some of these things like I'm just thinking of the connection one that I've got certain people in my life who if I've spent time with them I feel a sense of calm we might not have been talking about anything to do with anxiety and everything else but they bring me calm because I guess Mm. they're just really steady people in my life yeah and we spend so much time connected to people that we don't really know online but also just now with the working from home thing even a lot of people herald it as this amazing thing especially for women because it can be more flexible and all that other stuff but you're also narrowing that opportunity to connect in Mm. a way that I'm sure in 10 years time everyone's going what the fuck was that where we all sat at home on our own all day staring at a screen it can't be good for us in terms of like thinking of you and what you're saying about what's really key for the basic tools that humans need Mm, there are and these these things are you know the sleep diet movement fun and connection they are the foundational pillars for mental health regardless of the type of mental health problem you're looking at they're absolutely vital Mm. components and I think most people can listening to this can probably identify a time in their life where they slept well they ate well they exercised or moved their body and they used to have more fun and hang out more with people that they liked and they felt (laughs) better they used to have fun because I think it's hard to find the time Um, and now you know what what can you do but like you say when you spend time with people you might not feel like it and it can feel like such a mental effort to go and do that when you've got all this other stuff demanding time from you but I think seeing that as kind of a way to be more productive because when you go and spend time with people just as you've said that you get another perspective it changes your mindset of it and it puts you into a different mm-hmm. zone and that helps your uh, mental health it supports your mental health so it's really and I say used to have fun because um, a lot of parents and I think especially mums where you know uh, they've um, not all mums obviously but you know mums that are the primary carer and work part-time so they're doing more of the childcare. there's less time for fun um, or nothing is fun, yeah. or they don't ha- they don't want to have fun because they want to fold the laundry and get everything else ready and done all the. Well, it's not stuff. productive, is it? Fun no, isn't not. fun isn't productive, and actually we've got such a need, or we feel such a need to be productive all the time. Yeah, it can feel like well, like you say, when that something comes up in the diary, and you're like, oh, I haven't really got time for that. I'd rather sit on the sofa, but yeah, that's not making you feel any better, probably. No, but fun, you know, you have to look at fun activity as productive. And in the back of the book, I think there's about 150 ideas of fun things because sometimes we forget what, what we can do. Yeah. And it might be actually your <laughs> your idea of fun might be to sit by yourself and watch a movie undisturbed. That's fun as well. It doesn't always have to be with people. Yeah. But I think we have to see participation in fun activity as productive to mental health rather than doing mm. something that is unproductive and useless. And in the kind of tools section of the book, you talk about flexible versus inflexible thinking. Can you explain that? Because, again, it's that kind of trying to override what's going on in your head sometimes. Yeah. So, um, again, this comes down to a pattern, patterns of uh, thinking and behaving and perceiving as well. So if you're being 
inflexible, which a lot of people that have anxiety problems are. It's part of what mm-hmm. keeps you stuck because something happens, something triggers you, it causes a thought, the thought makes you feel a certain way and then that prompts some kind of action and you go around in this loop. So we see that, that's the inflexible loop that you're What stuck What would in. be an example of that, of an inflexible behaviour? Yeah, so like, uh, let's say checking would be an inflexible behaviour. So whether you're checking the door is locked or you're checking on Google again mm-hmm. uh, for health symptoms or you're checking rereading text messages that you've sent to make sure you didn't say anything stupid yeah so when you're not flexible you're not exercising full awareness of what you're doing and how what you're doing might be making your anxiety worse and you know that you're not being flexible if it's become a repetitive pattern so what flexibility is versus inflexibility is when you're dealing with anxiety you're becoming more consciously aware of the impact of these inflexible actions on your anxious thoughts and feelings so does doing that relieve anxiety in the short term is it a solution in the long term if it was and you've done it 10 times you should actually be having less anxiety not more so when you start to develop this awareness of inflexible actions which are generally repetitive you get you can have the awareness to make choices and when we move into choice we're moving towards flexibility so we're stepping back we're able to think about what we want what do we want to do about difficult thoughts and feelings do we want to choose actions that move you towards more struggle because each time you do that inflexible stuff you're reinforcing anxiety or do we want to move away Mm -hmm. from that struggle by doing something different so doing something different means you're being flexible so instead of rereading you might say actually I'm not going to reread the message I sent I'm I'm going to just wait 10 minutes or I'm going to go and do something for an hour and then see if I want to reread it so it's about taking those kinds of actions and thinking about things differently making different choices another one kind of linked is about the intolerance of uncertainty and you talk about that what would be your top tip for dealing with change because it's you know there's always something uncertainties uh and its intolerance is a big issue for people with anxiety Mm. problems and the two go hand in hand actually you'd be hard pushed to find someone struggling with anxiety that doesn't also have an issue with uncertainty. But uncertainty, you know, it's an inevitable part of life. We can't eliminate it. So we've got to learn to live with it by enhancing our ability to tolerate it or navigate it so we can get more resilient in the face of it. To get good at uncertainty, you've got to start small. And I said engaging in kind of small behaviours where you might be having kind of I guess control some kind of control that prevents a certain outcome even though it might be a harmless thing so an example would be you only want to go to the same supermarket because you don't like change and you don't like uncertainty and you know where everything is so you might decide actually I'm going to go to another supermarket doing that and going to different places builds up a good foundation level of uncertainty tolerance because you get used to adapting to different environments and doing things differently it's when we get stuck in kind of They're not actively controlling behaviours, but it's a situation where you're seeking out the same thing. Does that make sense? Mm, Yeah. In the book, there's loads of tips and kind of tools, let's call them, about. And so I think what's really useful is you could go in and find out what's specific to you with what is your anxiety for or about or whatever. And you can find tools that are relating to that. And I think the 
bit about the basics is really key because I think it's something that especially someone who's listening to this who's probably in this phase of life isn't great at I you know I don't know anyone who's got sleep diet movement fun and connection I, I know plenty of people who are struggling with all of those things and putting themselves bottom to kind of tackle those including me to be honest so I think that's a really cool bit to think about and again like you say because they're not big things they're things that we just need to do so it's quite simple in lots of ways yeah and that's kind of in the introductory part of the book and I said you know the main part of the book is not going to be about this stuff this is just kind of to get you to lay that foundation and I also say you know in that section that we're not striving for perfection because it's silly to think that everybody's going to be able to get a good night's sleep every single day of the night but it's about what good Mm -hmm. enough we're aiming for good enough and if today wasn't you know trying to tomorrow to make tomorrow a bit better and the same with diet I think there's a lot of stuff on nutrition on social media especially you know what I ate in a day as a nutritionist and you see all this amazing food while you're you know dipping pieces of apple straight into the peanut butter jar as a snack (laughs) (laughs) it does taste good but you know it's about aiming to kind of just get some basic good enough level and if you can't not feeling bad about that but seeing where you might have opportunities to add that in and that's kind of foundation before you get into the meat of the book which is as you say the kind of practical strategies for dealing with anxiety and anxious thoughts and symptoms and yeah and if someone is struggling with anxiety and they're listening to this and maybe they're starting to understand what their triggers and causes are but they don't know what they do next what's a good first step it depends on how bad the anxiety is and I think if people Mm. are really struggling I would say definitely speak to your GP who can guide you towards more support there is free support available across the country obviously sometimes in some services there are long waits but you can in most places you can google if you put talking therapies and your county it will come up with the page and it's a self-refer for anxiety problems sometimes there's a wait sometimes you might get seen quite quickly initially and then they'll tell you what might happen next but I always say speak to your GP and you know use self-help tools you know if there are you know books or stuff on social media that might help you but just a word of caution on that and on seeing people in person if you choose to go privately that in the UK there's no legal limit to Mm. what you can call yourself so you Steph could call yourself a psychotherapist irrespective of having any training so you know some psychotherapists undergo extensive training that lasts years but others might have done you know literally a one-day course or they have no formal training whatsoever so I recommend if Mm. you're seeking somebody privately look for a regulated professional. They are mandated by law to register with a government body responsible for safeguarding the public. But most professionals in this space are not regulated by law. So I would just say, ask them if they're regulated and then just check that they're on the register. But also asking, you know, privately, if you're seeing someone, ask them, you know, what expertise do you have in treating XYZ problem? How many people have you treated with this? What type of intervention to use for this and how long does it typically take you know we can give a a guideline on that so clinical guidelines say you know between six a minimum of six and up to 24 sessions is the range for anxiety yet you know I see I see people that have been in therapy for three years and um I was like, you know, that's not what the guidelines uh, say and sometimes sometimes that's because the type of treatment or the therapeutic approach has not been correctly matched to the person's problems or it's not evidence-based So you you need to be quite savvy, I think. And I think people don't know this. Sometimes 
you know, in certain models of psychotherapy, people turn up for the appointment and, you know, therapists might just stare at them and wait for them to speak. But I think people, professionals that, who might be listening to this, we've got to tell people how it works. I always tell a patient when they come in, so this is how it's going to work. I'm going to ask you lots of questions. It's quite structured, actually, my work, because we're trying to find yeah. out what the problem is, why it is, and what we can do about it. And there's some feedback at the end on this is what the plan is. But psychotherapy doesn't generally work like that, nor does counselling. But I think people don't know, and it can feel quite awkward and uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, yeah, especially if it's new. And the final, final question, if you want to support someone else who's anxious, because I think that's a, a big one and often you're not anxious about the same things that they're anxious about, right? So it's mm-hmm. quite hard to maybe put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. I suppose all the things you've just said of what ways you could encourage them to go and find someone to talk to, but is it this listening? Is that is that yeah. what you need to be able to do? I think offering understanding. If you don't have the understanding, go and try and learn about the, the problem, learn about anxiety, whatever anxiety disorder the person has to better understand what they're going through. And I think patience and empathy. And most importantly, I think knowing that they did not choose to be like that and it's really hard for them to make it stop, even if it makes no sense to you or seems irrational. So I think listening without mm-hmm. judgment and just remembering that and acknowledging their feelings. You know, people sometimes with anxiety might say to me I, I do the you know do all these daft things and my partner thinks it's uh, you know insane and it's irrational and it might look like that to somebody who doesn't suffer but it's learning about anxiety disorders helps you understand why people respond and behave and feel those things so educate yourself but I think at the same time you know people need to recognize that you've got a limit um, and don't compromise mm. your well-being and don't hold yourself responsible for fixing somebody else we can't do that but we can encourage people to seek help or get self-help or you know support them to seek help or give them time to go and do relaxing activities things like that can really help brilliant Thank you so much, Kieran. It's really lovely to talk to you, but also, yeah, I think there's loads in there that that will help people and get the book, I would say, 10 times calmer. Yeah, let's all be 10 times calmer. Thank you so much to Dr. Kieran. Do you see what I mean about her soothing voice? She's obviously super smart, but her knowledge just gives me a sense of calm. Um, I'd like her to walk around with me and just whisper calming thoughts. The book 10 Times Karma is really good, really practical, but also has really clear chapters. So you don't necessarily have to read the whole thing in order. Depending how you're feeling, you can go and find the right bits for you. And thank you to the Institute for sponsoring this episode. And thank you for listening. Uh, There's over 50 episodes to go back and listen to. And if you subscribe, then you'll get a notification when a new episode goes live. And as always, it would be excellent if you can leave a review. That could be your Christmas gift to me. Um, And if you need Christmas gifts, don'tbuyherflowers.com is an excellent place to start. Take care. I hope that this week has some calm in it for you.